Our scripture text for this evening comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. We begin in verse 55 and read to chapter 18, verse 5. Hear now the word of God. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. The king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the, from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war, set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Our holy God, who made all things visible and invisible, we ask you to visit us tonight by your word, working in each of our hearts so that we love and treasure what you also love and treasure. Make us receptive. Make us willing to hear. Make your word effective in our hearts and lives. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. At the beginning of, uh, of Von Roberts' wonderful little book, True Friendship, which I highly recommend. Von Roberts talks about the television sitcom Friends. And according to Von Roberts, part of the appeal of the show of Friends, show Friends was that, that you had these six single friends all living together in close proximity, really, uh, in a sense, really devoted to each other. And, and he quotes from David Schwimmer, one of the, the actors on the show, and this is what David Schwimmer just said as he described the show. He said that friends is a fantasy for a lot of people, having a group of friends who become like family. And, and here's what Von Roberts says about that. He says, for many, that is all that it is, a fantasy. 20% of adults admit to feeling alone at any time, and the same percentage say they have no friends with whom to discuss a personal problem. All that is to say, real friendship is, is hard to come by. Um, when I look at the really, really, truly great friends that I have in my life, I think, what if I hadn't had a single conversation with him? What if I hadn't talked to that person that one time? This, they just wouldn't be in my life now. So you realize how elusive friendship can be. And so not everyone experiences it. Not everyone has that. Um, loneliness is a very real problem. 
When someone asked Mother Teresa, what is the greatest, most devastating ep epidemic? Mother Teresa said, and by the way, this might be the only time you get Mother Teresa quote from me. But Mother, Mother Teresa said loneliness. She said loneliness is a greater epidemic than AIDS or cancer. Uh, C.S. Lewis, whom you are going to hear a lot from tonight, uh, because he, I think of all people, I think C.S. Lewis thought perhaps most deeply about the issue of friendship. But one of the things that Lewis said was, we live in a world starved for solitude, silence, and private, and therefore a world starved for meditation and true friendship. The older I get, um, the more convinced I am that men today especially are starving for friendships. Um, men are surrounded by people. We have many acquaintances, long lists of acquaintances. We have lots of connections with people, um, folks that we cross paths with all the time, perhaps, especially for work. But for the most part, I think men are really starving for real friendships. And I'm sure there are psychologists who have their explanations for why friendships among men seem to be on, on the decline. But, but I have to think that one factor must be that we don't see many examples of strong, masculine, godly relationships in our lives. And so because the men in our lives seem not to have a lot of great relationships with other men, then we also are suffering because of it. It is never, it's never safe to generalize. I, we still do it. I think people in general tend to, to generalize. But it, it seems like it is socially acceptable, just as an example, for a woman to say, I have a best friend, but not so much for a man. I don't hear men talking about their best friends. Now, I do it. But it's because I made a willful decision that I, that I would start to do it. And it feels countercultural for me to talk about having a best friend. But it seems like women uh, are, are allowed to have best friends and men aren't allowed. It, for some reason, it's not socially acceptable. Now, now, just to be clear, though, before I say anything else, I think if you're listening to this and you're a woman, you, you might be thinking to yourself, I also am starving for friendships. I, I understand that. Women are hungry for relationships, too. Women are lonely, too. And, and, and yet, isn't it, isn't it true that this passage tonight is really an example of two men in a remarkable friendship? Might it be that, at least with this passage tonight, God is giving us a model of, of male friendship here? And perhaps even it's because he knew that we would need it. In fact, that's not speculation. God did know that we would need examples of male friendship. And so he gives it to us. Now, I think there are lessons here for both sexes. There are lessons here for men. There are lessons here for women, boys and girls. But, but if, you're a, if you're a man especially, I hope that you will find encouragement here to pursue friendships with other men. Because... It is good because those friendships can be a means of grace from God to us. God can use those friendships to strengthen us. If David is such a godly man, and even he needed this relationship with Jonathan, why should we think that we are any better than David? 
or not. And so I want to suggest, just from the passage, three ing ingredients to true godly friendship, um, all from the text and, and from this passage in the life of David and Jonathan. And those three ingredients are brotherly love, brotherly devotion, and brotherly cause. You will see them, I think, all of these things in the text tonight. Now, first, we see brotherly love. Um, before this, this moment in the text, I would just note something. In the last five verses of chapter 17, Saul seems like he doesn't remember David. I'm addressing this before we actually get to the substance of this. But there is this moment where Saul seems like he doesn't remember David. He looks and he says, who is, whose father is that? Who's, who is that man's father? And one there are a few possibilities. Why on earth he was just he just spent time playing the harp for Saul. Now why is Saul suddenly acting like he's never seen David before? There are a couple possibilities. One is just that some time has passed and Saul has forgotten who David is. Think, think about this. Enough time has passed that when the Goliath narrative began, David was no longer in the court playing the harp, but he was back on the family farm with Jesse, his father. And, and so it actually may be that he has grown up, years have passed, he's hard to recognize after a few years. Um, especially you have somebody as self-centered as Saul, he may just not have thought very much about that guy that played the harp for him. Another possibility, I think, is, is even more straightforward if you just look at the text you don't have to make any assumptions. Maybe it is the case that Saul remembers David, but he doesn't remember who David's father is. He doesn't remember that his father is, is Jesse. Because notice in verses 56 and 58, the question is not, who is this kid? The question is, who is his father? Who is his father? Uh, but when we talk about brotherly love, and that's really what this first point is about, when you're talking about brotherly love, you're really talking about a type of honoring. You're talking about a mutual respect that exists between two people. You know, a sort of honoring that happens in, in friendship. Look, look what the passage says. It says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Um... Very, very frustrating reality of modern interpreters of Scripture is that they want to come to a passage like this and they want to immediately read into it homoerotic overtones. And one of the reasons why I believe modern interpreters seem to reflexively do that with a passage like this is exactly what I talked about in the very beginning. We have a dearth of male friendships. We are starved for friendship. We are so starved for friendship that the only kind of relationships it seems like modern people uh, believe that men can have with other men are inappropriate sexual relationships. And here David and Jonathan are, and they are an example of the kind of love that can and should exist between men. And it is not a romantic love. What do they have here? This is, a, this is a relationship of mutual admiration and appreciation. Think about this. Think about who these two men are at this point. They are very accomplished men. Now, David has just defeated the Philistine. 
And really, he did something even greater, right? He showed this incredible love and trust in God. So David has this, this moment where his faith in God not only shows forth, but where the fruits of it begin to, to arrive, begin to be seen. And then you also have, if you remember back in chapter 13, that Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And that was a brave, triumphant uh, exercise of faith in God as well. And so you have these men who have both experienced these battles. They both have these accomplishments behind them. And you have this trust in God that it's really hard not to appreciate when you see it. Do you ever see something in another person? And I, again, I'm not just talking to, to men here, but I'm talking to women as well. But do you ever see something in another person that is so incredible that you cannot help but admire it? One of the seasons in my life where I, I had so much admiration, and it was like my admiration was stacked upon admiration, was when I was in seminary and when I was at RTS. And as I was, was in these preaching classes with these students, um, one of the things that I found in my own heart was that I had trouble sometimes listening to sermons and listening charitably. And so on the one hand, I would listen uh, to the sermons and I would have so much appreciation, I would think I'm never going to preach like that guy. And I just think, whatever church he's going to, what a blessing he's going to be. And I, re I just remember I had so many experiences of admiration when I, was, when I was listening to these other students preach. But then, sometimes there were students that you would listen to and you, and you would think, I hope that he loves his church. <laughs> um, because preaching is not, doesn't seem to be his strong suit quite yet. And, and I was that, was, that was, that was a jerky thing to do. That was wrong of me. Um, that was deficient in my heart. But I remember this, even those moments were an opportunity for admiration on my part. Because do you know what would happen? After the, after the, the um, sermon would be over, Dr. Wingard would look at the class and he would say, All right, let's hear some constructive criticism. And, and there was one student in particular that I had such admiration for. Because he had a charitable spirit. And I could see it. And I could see it in the way that he treated these students whose sermons still needed, needed work. And, and I just remember that one, one time there was a, a sermon that did not go well. And Dr. Wingard said, do we have any constructive feedback? And I remember there was one student in particular, and he's, he's still in the area, and I love him. And he would look at students like that, and he would say, my brother here preached Christ, and he set Jesus before us. What greater thing can you say, in a sense, about a sermon than that? And, and, and what I found admiration of was the rich spirit of charity that I would see in others. And I would want that for myself. So the, the thing about admiration is that not only are you glad the other person has this gift, not only are you glad this other person has this accomplishment, but you do want to see that increase in yourself. And you do it without envy. Mutual respect. Mutual respect. There's a French Reformed minister from the 1500s. His name was Lambert de And this is what he said about this. He said, The ground and foundation of true Christian friendship 
is the admiration of virtue or of some special gift of God that resides in another, the praise or use of which respects either God himself or a person. This moved Jonathan to knit himself in most firm friendship with David, whom for his valiant heart and noble courage in vanquishing proud Goliath, he highly esteemed, honored, and entirely loved. These are men who admire and respect one another. They admire and respect one another. True Christian friendship is built upon a foundation of admiration for one another. But even the thing that we admire in the other person, always remember that it comes from God. So the thing that we love, the thing we admire, is something that God has been working and developing in that other person. Another side of this is that we need to be people who are capable of admiration and not just jealousy. When we see something in another person, we need to appreciate. Being able to appreciate without needing to possess is very important in friendship. Here's C.S. Lewis again. I told you you'd hear a lot from C.S. Lewis tonight. He says, in perfect friendship, this appreciative love is, I think, often so great and so firmly based that each person feels in his secret heart humbled before the other. Sometimes he wonders what he is doing here among his betters. He is lucky beyond desert to be in such company. And so there's brotherly love here between David and Jonathan. There is an appreciative love in the friendship that they have. They can each see in the life of the other the fruit of God working his way out. In them. There is respect. There is admiration. The first ingredient of godly friendship tonight. Second, tonight we see brotherly devotion. Look at how verse 3 puts it. It says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Um, Jonathan doesn't just make a promise. He is bound together to David by something that's stronger than just a promise in the ancient Near East. Because in the ancient Near East, the way that you really could confirm in a definitive way that you were going to keep your word was you would make a covenant. And one of the purposes of the covenant in the ancient Near East was that you, by making the covenant, you assure the other party of your devotion to them in a way that is lasting and binding and unbreakable. And so what would happen was the party that was cutting the covenant would, would make promises of provision, of respect, and of loyalty. And that's what happens here. Think of what Jonathan does in verse 4. In verse 4, he takes his robe, his sword, his belt, his royal accoutrements, and, and he places them upon David. He seems to be acknowledging that David is the true king. He doesn't say the words, but his actions speak, right? He is, he is acknowledging something that will eventually be to his own hurt. Because if David becomes king, then Jonathan will not be king. And Jonathan is swearing loyalty to David. 
even though in the long run that's not going to be his personal benefit. Here's what Walter Chantry says about what happens here. He says, the crown prince of Israel, that's Jonathan, the crown prince of Israel made a covenant with the shepherd. He gave his clothing and weapons to David as symbols of his devoted comradeship. One day, Jonathan would even express agreement with God's will that David should have the crown instead of him. It was a selfless, sacrificial, loyal love for David that would endure until death. Mutual fidelity was pledged that very day, and it proved to be a most satisfying fellowship to both men for a lifetime. It's an incredibly impactful thing, this, this covenant that happens here. It involves commitment. It involves promises, even. Now, I, I'm not saying that <laughs> to have friendships, men have to take friendship oaths or, or vows or, or something like that, but... For friendship to happen, for friendship to flourish, there needs to be a mutual understanding of trust, right? I'm not going to throw you under the bus the moment I have a chance. If you're going to be friends, that has to be an understanding. There's a, there's a degree of loyalty that true friendship requires. We are in this, and we are in this together. Friendship cannot happen if there is distrust if there is suspicion. And so how does, how does Jonathan allay that? He makes a covenant with David here. They give us an example this evening of brotherly devotion. Third tonight, we have a final ingredient of godly friendship, which is brotherly cause. That is, that is to say, they have a sense that they are both working toward the same goal, with the same conviction. This is very important, and you will see, uh, and, and, and as you'll see, you'll get the most attention from, from, from us on this point. We're, we're going to spend the most time on this. You see an expression of this brotherly cause here in verses 4 and 5. It says, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. These are men with not only mutual respect and loyalty, but they also have common cause and goals together. In this case, they have a common commitment to God. They have a common commitment to God's people. And they have a common commitment to being warriors for Israel. This is why they exchange armor. This is, why, this is why that happens there. They have a common cause. What are they doing? They fight for God. They live for God. They fight for Israel. They lock arms together in this. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay about friendship, and one of the things he talked about, uh, actually I think it was from his book, The Four Loves, one of the things he talks about in The Four Loves is that we picture different loves positioned differently. When we think of lovers, for example, we, we picture them face to face, focused on each other, gazing into each other's eyes. But how do we picture friends? One of the things Lewis says is we picture them side by side, shoulder to, to, to shoulder. 
So what is the difference there? The difference is that in love, the two people are focused on each other, but in friendship, they're bound together by a common goal or a common interest or a common passion. Like, like when we discover someone else walking the same road, and so we decide that we're going to walk together. There's something else Lewis said. He said, friendship is born at that moment when another person, when one person says to another, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. In another place, he says, what draws people to be friends is that they see the same truth. They share it. Isn't that, isn't that great? Um, I, I have something to say at this point about friendship. And, and it's especially for those of you who feel like you don't have friends. Um, for those of you who are lonely. Um, or, you know, you just wonder if you're supposed to just, if you're supposed to just get friends. How are you supposed to just get friends? And, and, and that's this. How do you get friends? You live life passionately, joyfully, purposefully. You live with specific and, and, and careful interests. And as you pursue your interests, as you pursue the things that are the most important to you, and as you do it with, with zeal and joy, you are going to find others along the way who are doing the same, and who are pursuing the same things, and who love the same things, right? That, that especially tends to happen in the context of the church, by the way. If you are in the church, and the people that you are around all the time are not in the church, one of the things you're going to find is you are pursuing a very different set of interests than those people who are outside the church. It's really difficult. You can have relationships with people who are not Christians. It's really difficult to have true friendship with people who aren't Christians if you're a believer. It's really difficult. You're walking in different directions. Certainly, um, in the context of godly relationships, I would suggest that the key to developing deep, lasting, true relationships is this. Pursue God with focused joy, and you will find those who are doing the same. So, you notice what I said. I didn't say, if you want to find friendships, then go find people. It's actually counterproductive. There's a desperation as we're looking for other people and saying, will you be my friend? Will you be my friend? And that's actually, it actually works when you're a little kid uh, because the very fact that you're both looking for friends is a good enough reason for you to be friends when you're, when you're children. But, but Lewis, Lewis says it this way. Listen to how he says this. This is so good. The very condition of having friends is that we would want something else besides friends. The, the goal, in other words, isn't friends. Here's what he says. We want something else besides friends, where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing, and I don't care about the truth. I only want a friend. No friendship can arise, though affection, of course, may. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about. And friendship must be about something, even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Those who have nothing can share 
nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Do you see what Lewis is saying? Where are you going? What are you doing? What matters to you? What is it that gives you joy? What are, your, what are you pursuing? As you answer those questions, you begin to find the grounds of friendship. The deepest friendship of all is spiritual friendship, right? This is, a, this is a friendship that is bound together, not by circumstances, not by situations, not even by trivialities or entertainments or things that change or shift, but it is our mutual commitment to Jesus Christ. It's the deepest form of friendship that there is. My best friend, and again I say uh, men are not allowed to have best friends, but I'll, I'll just say it, I have a best friend. My best friend is someone I have very little in common with. Um, we don't like the same music. We don't like the same movies. We don't like the same TV shows. Um, whenever I find a new TV show that I love, I will tell him, give it a chance. And his response is almost always something along the lines of, I will, but I already know I'm going to hate it because you like it. <laughs> we don't have these similar interests when it comes to all of these other uh, extracurricular things but what we do have in common is the Lord and we've been friends for 15 years 15 years and counting right is there anything more powerful to bind two people together than that David and Jonathan are both godly men who look forward to the coming Savior together. They stand side by side, pursuing the same things. Part of the strength of that is this. They both love the Lord. They both love the Lord. They both trust God. They fear the Lord. They are rare men in Israel. And so because of that, they each swear that they will strengthen the other. My life will be about strengthening you, Jonathan. And your life will be about strengthening me. By the way, in their relationship, it seems to me that Jonathan does most of the strengthening. Here is what I'm saying about friendship, and this is a message for Christians. Christian, pursue God for your own good, for your own joy, for his glory, and you will become the sort of person who will be a friend to those who need one. In Jesus Christ, friendship is something that makes us stronger and builds us up in God. Henry Array says it so well. He says, Sincerity and religion, in religion and true fear of the Lord are the best bands of Christian friendship. Why is there such slackness in all sorts of people to help one another and to comfort one another in any time of need? Surely this is the reason, because our love is only a cold love grounded on this or that worldly respect, instead of our love for one another, being in the Lord and for the Lord. I have one more thing to say as we close tonight, and it's very, it's very important. I, I know that most of the time we've been talking about what is friendship and how can we have it. But think about this. David is about to endure a difficult season. 
In fact, the rest of Jonathan's life, uh, his father will be in conflict with David, all the way to the end of 1 Samuel. But there's something so extraordinary that we will continue to, to notice through the rest of this narrative, and that's this. God doesn't leave David alone to his enemies. David will endure agony upon agony, but he won't endure it alone. God doesn't leave David to flounder in solitude. Here's what Ecclesiastes 4.9 says. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. What does God do for David? He leaves him, Jonathan, to support and encourage him, to carry him during the tough and dark times. And God does this for all of us. Well, you might say, no, no, that's just a platitude. That's just a cliche. Preacher, you're slipping into talking about cliches again and just saying nice things. But this is not true for me. I'm friendless right now. I feel alone right now. I feel very alone. I'm lonely. And in fact, as I listen to this sermon, it makes me feel more lonely. Because I don't have someone like Jonathan in my life. I have no really close friendships. I don't really deal in this text with how we can remedy that. But it is my belief and my hope, especially in the church, that in order for us to develop friendships, we need to be in each other's lives. David and Jonathan are in each other's lives. That's how this friendship is even able to happen. And what that means is that in the church, we need to take practical steps to make that happen. We should be around each other. We should share meals with each other. Maybe somebody's not your friend right now. That's okay. Invite them over. Spend time with them. Ask them out to lunch. Go visit them every now and then. But let's say you hear all this and you really feel like uh, you don't have this, right? Here's my question for you. You say, you say, I don't have this. I don't have friends. I am lonely. Here's my question. Did God do something for David that he won't do for you? In this case, my answer is no. He did. He's going. He does. He does do this. Because if you are his child, your circumstances may be trying. You may, be, you may truly be without a friend in this world. But here's my encouragement. Regardless of how you feel, he has never left you alone. You may be lonely, but he has never left you alone. What does Jesus say in John 15, 14? He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. You haven't been left friendless. You haven't been left alone. You may experience solitude, you may even feel lonely, but you are not alone. If you are in Christ, then you have a friend in Jesus. That's not a cliche. 
That's not a cliche. Jesus says it. These are his words. His word is good. His word is true. You can trust what he says. Every relationship, every friendship that God lets us have is, is a comfort and it is a, a mercy to us. But even your friends will fail you. Jesus' friends all failed him. And they were committed until the moment it came for them to actually show that commitment in action. Even the best of your friends cannot fill you up. They can't take away your emptiness. Even your spouse can't do that. Nobody can do that. Nobody in this world. Their presence can only take away your lonely feelings for the moment. But imagine even the greatest relationship that you can. In relationships, we always feel a smidge insecure because we feel like we always need to have some kind of approval from that person. There's a little bit of a trap there. With Christ, that fear is gone. And the reason that fear is gone is because our acceptance with Jesus has nothing to do with our performance. It is all about his sacrifice. The basis of our relationship is Christ's sacrifice, which can't be torn up or ruined ever. With human relationships, there are limitations, right? We can't always be together. Um, I rarely get to see my best friend. I got to see him earlier this year at his installation service for his church. Uh, but I, we, we live on other sides of the country from each other. Not only that, but all our earthly friendships are going to end someday. Even a great relationship isn't ultimate. The Lord Jesus can be as real to you as a human friend who is physically here in your presence. He really can be. He really is. And this is why Christ is so important. And, and I actually close with the words of Von Roberts here. This is Again, this is from his book, True Friendship, which I highly recommend. We human beings are made as relational creatures in the image of God who is love. Above all, we are made to relate to him. And without that relationship, we will always experience emptiness within. People have tried to fill that vacuum with money, pleasure, and achievements, but nothing else fits. Not even human relationships, however good they may be, can bring complete fulfillment. Only Jesus Christ can ultimately satisfy the hunger of our hearts. Jesus not only forgives our greatest failings, but also meets our greatest longings. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, so great is your love for us that you sent your own Son into this world to bear the weight of sin, the penalty of sin, the consequences of our sin that we might go free. You've sent him even now to live within each of us by your spirit that we might be able to truly say, Jesus is a friend of mine. Even if we have no earthly friends, you've given us a gift that can't be compared. You've given us fellowship with you through your son, in whose name we pray. Amen.